Roger Reynolds, and uh, I was thinking, trying to think of when we first met. I remember. Okay, go ahead. So, you had a ponytail down to about the middle of your back, and you and your wife showed up at somebody's house, and Ed Bronson at Dorsfell had assembled all of us, and it was a bit of a focus group on whether to change the name from Ski for All to Outdoors for All. That's right. That's where I met you. Yep. And I don't know if you were on the board of Outdoors for All at the time. I was not. You are not. Okay. I was just brought in as a consultant to okay. chat about it. Yeah, got it. So that's when you and I first met. That's and that right. would have been because I believe, well, I know because I was the chair of the board 2005 to seven, and we changed the name during that period. So it was a number of years before that. So early 2000s, yep. I believe. That's, that's about right. Exactly. So I'm sitting here with, again, like my good, like I said, my good friend Roger Reynolds, uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time to of come course. because we have, we have so many different parallels in our lives in terms of what we've done that <coughs> this is just going to be a really fun conversation for me and hopefully for you as well because I started this podcast based on experiences in my life and revolving around mindset and how mindset is what allows me to do the things that I want to do, even though I'm in a low wheelchair and some things can be hard for me. And the mindset of accessibility is where it really started, even though it's grown from that, mm -hmm. because <clears throat> accessibility isn't a feature set of a ramp and a grab bar. Accessibility is a mindset. And if everybody was in a wheelchair in the world, then the whole world would be wheelchair accessible, which means right. that anything is possible. So. I wanted you and I to talk because of our experiences and our, our shared interests in several mm -hmm. different things. And I'd love it if you talked a little bit about, you already brought up Outdoors for All and Ski for All. And let's start with that. Let's start with what Outdoors for All is because the mindset of that entire organization's mantra is exactly what I'm talking about. So give me the, give me the back end of Outdoors for All. Yeah, Barry. So I believe that <clears throat> the mechanisms and the tools of adaptive recreation really are leading towards a mindset and experience, a respect of, a support of people living in the disability or special needs community. And the organization, of course, facilitates its desired impact, which is enhancing the lives of individuals living with a disability or special needs through adaptive recreation and experiencing the outdoors. So. The, all the equipment, the largest fleet of adaptive bikes in the United States, every piece of equipment you could think of to allow individuals to get out and you know, get, get water uh, around them, get wind in their hair, allow them to be going up a climbing wall or down a slippery ski slope, all of those are merely mechanisms in my opinion. I've always thought of them as just tools to enhance the life of, to share what's possible Oh, this, I wouldn't have thought, okay, this just came to mind. A week ago Saturday, Nadia and I were on the snowshoe trail outside of Hayak volunteering with Outdoors for All. There were nine of us, and we were heading out on the trail. We had a couple participants and some instructors. And to the right, all of a sudden, this young lady, she wasn't part of our group, and I heard her yelling, Outdoors for All, Outdoors for All, you guys changed my life, I love you, Outdoors for All. And I said, hold on, hold on, and she made some comments about, I'm where I bought my own snowshoes. I've got my own place now. And I said, hold on, hold on. And I grabbed my phone. I said, can I tape what you just said? Will you say that all to me again? She said, sure. And there's a 16 second video that I've shared probably a dozen times in the past week. And she said, 
My life has been changed because of Outdoors for All and the programs. She said, I bought my own pair of snowshoes. I now have my own place. And it was just this wonderful thing. And probably 25 people on the trail all clapped for her. She was out there by herself. Yeah. She didn't She didn't need Outdoors for All. She was pursuing life on her own. Yeah. She obviously, by getting her own place, and I didn't know her outside of that 20-second interaction. She obviously was living maybe in a, a, a family's home or with roommates. She had her own place. The joy in her voice, if I played that video for you right off my phone yeah. right now, we would all recognize immediately this program in particular, Outdoors for All, enhanced her life. Maybe it gave her the possibility and the vision, I can buy my own equipment. Maybe I have the confidence now to live independently and do things all are able to do or aspire to do. So it was pretty cool. Um, again, that was just an outcome. It was a symptom of, I believe, a mentality around Outdoors for All, which is let's use some mechanism. We have an expertise in adaptive recreation to, to facilitate uh, life fulfillment experiences being part of, quote, unquote, the all. Absolutely. So my first experience was I had, I crashed my motorcycle in 1991 and I got out of the hospital. I was eight months in the hospital, seven and a half months. It was a long time. And then I got out and I went back to school and I got into radio and was playing in that world. And then my goal was to go backpack around the world. So I grabbed my best friend roommate and said, I can't do this by myself. You got to come with me. And he and I took, well, I took two and a half years and backpacked around the world. I went to 19 countries. I've never heard this story. And, and Brian and I traveled all over the place. Uh, we started in New Zealand and then went to Australia. So actually 30 years ago today, this day, I know exactly where I was 30 years ago because my diary is telling me that. Every day I'm reading my diary oh, because neat. we were in New Zealand. So I had traveled for about a year and a half. And I surprised my friends who were getting married and my sister for her high school graduation. So I flew home and didn't tell anybody. And no one knew that I was coming home. So, well, except the bride's mom, because she got me a text. So I flew into SeaTac. I got a cab to take me downtown so I could get a bus to get home with my backpack. And I, I came home, I walked in the door of my parents' house, and nobody was home. The phone rang. And it was somebody from this organization called Ski for All that said, hi, is Barry there? I'm like, yeah, uh, this is me. He said, well, I've been given your name because we're starting a water ski program and we're down on Lake Washington and we need participants this afternoon to go ski. Would you be interested in learning how to water ski? And I went, well, uh, yeah. So I went outside. I got my Mustang started, which had been sitting there for a year. I char charged it up. I drove down to Lake Washington. I pulled in at some guy's house down right just south of where the VMAC is now, or maybe just mm -hmm. north of where the VMAC is now. And I water skied. Well, King 5 was there. So I went out, and I'm behind the boat, and I've got two jet skis, one on each side of me, and I've got the, the support group and the second boat, and John Stevenson was there. Yeah, and, John. And uh, Bill Hines and, and Ruthie right. Stender were there. And boom, next thing I know, I'm skiing. Well, they followed me around with a camera. So I'm out there skiing. My dad comes home from work, and he's sitting on the couch. And is watching me water ski, having no idea that I'm even in the country. <laughs> and so I got home that night. And my dad was like, what the hell? He goes, I didn't even know you were here. I had to find out on TV that you were in the country again. That's because a great story. I learned how to, how to water ski with Ski for All. Yeah. You know, and then that was when my, my affinity for the organization began. Because I realized that they were giving me an opportunity that I didn't think I was ever going to have again. Yeah. Water ski in a wheelchair? Come on. you got to be kidding. 
that's right. And then I found out there was snow skiing, and then there was all these other things. So when you and I met several years later, the, the thing I remember most about one of our first meetings was that somebody said that this organization has grown from snow skiing, which is how it started, to if you walk into REI, anything that you can do in REI that they advertise, we should be able to do at this new organization. And hence, Outdoors for All became the name because of that that mindset of well if you walk into rai anybody with a disability should be able to do any of those things that are inside that building that's right and that was i use that tagline today to describe in my elevator pitch walk into rei see a piece of equipment it represents an activity we facilitate it for people with disabilities and special needs right that's fantastic it's changed my life you know and i've always been uh, a supporter of the organization because of that you know, and what's really fun is, so I'm working on a book right now, <laughs> and the woman who's guiding me is Ruthie, who was my first, you know, she was one of my first experiences of, of Ski for All and Outdoors for All, and then she and Bill helped modify the snow skis for me with John Stevenson, yeah. you know, and that was how I learned how to snow ski, and now 30 years later, Ruthie's helping me write my book, you know, Got so it. we've stayed friends all these years, which is just fantastic. So I didn't know that your injury was 1991 because 1991 was my first year volunteering as a ski instructor with Outdoors for All. Oh. Interesting tie in there. So yeah. I didn't realize how kind of close post-injury you were when we may have first uh, uh, interacted. Yep, yep. And then I remember the time I, uh, I was pulling into Bellevue Square. You're going to steal my story. Lot. Okay, you, you tell can't, it. Yeah, you no, can't tell it. You, you want me to tell it, it now? You tell it this now. This is under just mindset. For fun. Okay. Yeah, it is. So it's just for fun, but I want to tie it in to the theme of why you had me here, which is mindset. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm going to submit is that the mindset of caring enough to actually be a little uncomfortable, to actually maybe step out. And in society today, we've got to all be very careful and appropriately careful. We don't know somebody's backstory. We don't know what's going on. We see things on face value. But I think there are certain circumstances where we all should take that risk and just step out a moment. So I wrote this down. I was going to share this. <laughs> so I was on my motorcycle on my Harley. I'd just come out of the Starbucks at the lodge attached there to Bell Square. And sure as crap, here comes his hot rod red Mustang, pulls up, pulls right into the closest disabled spot. And here's this tightly cropped hair, good looking guy. And I'm like, oh, I'm on my motorcycle. I'm like, I got to say something. No, I don't want to say something. I got to tell him. No, he can't. I got it. I said, okay. So I had actually started my motorcycle. And, and you may not recall this detail, but I shut it down. And I started to wheel my wheelchair or my, my excuse me, my uh, motorcycle, 700 pounds, kind of push it over to your car. And I was going to ask, hey, friend, are you really supposed to be part? And at that time, you flung your driver door open. You pulled from the passenger seat your chair and you started to assemble your wheels and etc. And the thing that I did, you may or not remember this, to save face was, hey, what kind of wheelchair is that? That's right. Because I love Tylite. <laughs> yeah. A friend of mine used to be the owner of Tylite. He right. created it. And it wasn't until like, I think 20 or 30 seconds into that conversation, I'm like, Barry? Because the last time I saw you, you had this ponytail down in the middle of your back. And I didn't know you drove this hot rod red Mustang. So... My reason for thinking of that in advance was, and I'm no hero here, it's not my point. No. I felt the anxiety, and it was like a 15-minute story playing in my head that happened over about two seconds of, do I go say something? 
do I support the person that needs to park there as opposed to this good-looking young guy pulling up in his hot rod red Mustang that just, you know, wants to be closer to his latte rather than walk 30 feet. And I took a risk there. And thankfully it turned out the way it did. Yes. But I've never forgotten, what if I did, what if I was wrong or the anxiety that I felt? So the mindset, I think whatever someone's, I don't want to say, you know, the able-bodied population, whatever, any of us, we have to, I think, have the ability to take a little bit of a risk and stand up for or call out or have a conversation around things that aren't comfortable or that maybe we're seeing somebody just needs some education or a little nudge to the right way to do something or a little bit of understanding. And I'll I'll lead this into one of the other things I wanted to share in this, this concept that you planted a mindset. So as you know, it's my 33rd year of working with Outdoors for All starting in 1991. So the first four years that I was a uh, uh, on-snow ski instructor, and then my participant, my athlete, decided to be involved with our special Olympic group, the Ski Hawks. So for multi-years running, I was a chaperone, not only for my athlete, but a number of other athletes, and the Special Olympic Games are in Wenatchee. So I would be responsible for, oh, we're heading to the grocery store. Okay, got my six athletes and shepherd them around, or we're heading to a meal here or there. The times that I saw, and, and some of our participants in Outdoors for All, you can physically surmise they may have a disability, and some you can't. We'd all be cruising in our, our ski jackets, we're all the same, we're on a team, and I saw people actually turn around and go to a different door, or go a different, because I think they had a fear, a fear of, oh, do I open the door, do I not? Do I step aside, do I not? Do I go through, for, there is such a fear, and I think it's a, I'll call it, I want to know, I want to believe it's a compassionate fear, that it is out of misunderstanding, not knowing, anxiety, and that people's morals and ethics are, I don't want to do something wrong, so I won't risk doing something right. And I saw that in restaurants and everywhere we went of, with a group of people that have physical disabilities, you can see it, the general public, I don't think we're trying to disrespect, but their mindset was, I don't know what to do. And that was really fascinating to me. And so that early on lesson had me, I'm not a disability advocate, I'm just Roger, but anywhere I can, any organ, any situation, the people, not right now, unfortunately, but a gentleman that was team member of mine at Coldstream, and he had to depart recently due to some, some health issues, been a cheer user since he was 16, he's in his mid-40s, and anywhere that I could introduce him in our company to, hey, I want you to get to know so-and-so, and just facilitate a conversation where maybe that person without a disability wouldn't have approached that on their own just because of of fear and and the wrong mindset. So, yeah, it's really interesting that I want to believe in the positive nature of human behavior. I want to believe that there is abundant compassion, but I'm also not naive to know that there isn't fear, anxiety, and hesitations, and that somebody has to intentionally try and help somebody over those items. Yeah, and I've been in a nice position to do that at times. You have, and, and you've been an advocate for that. And it's, you said education, and education is huge in this, um, in this respect because people don't know because they haven't needed to know. And if you've never worked with, dealt with, met somebody who's in a wheelchair, then how can you know how to act, how to feel, how to, how to react? Right. Because you haven't been in that situation. So I, I love to 
to push the disabled population a little bit and say, you've got to have a little bit of grace. Just because they did the wrong thing or said the wrong thing doesn't mean it was coming out of angst or, or aggression. It was because they didn't know and you educating them, then the next time they're going to be more apt to do the right thing. Whereas right. if you jump on them and aggressively attack because they did the wrong thing, then next time they're just not going to say anything. And they probably, with their friends and family around a glass of wine or something, <clears throat> are going to share that story. That's right. And it's going to propagate, and it'll be a telephone game of it flows into something bad, right? That Absolutely. Will, yeah. I mean, just today, I mean, I, I'm driving our Sequoia, which is 10 feet off the ground for me. And as I was getting in at the bank, and I'm lifting myself up way too high, and I reached down to grab my chair, and boom, there was a woman standing there. And she said, I know you can probably do it yourself, but my son's in a wheelchair. Can I help? What a wonderful way to approach you. How perfect was that? How respectful. Absolutely. Yeah. Nice. And obviously, she has she a son knew. in a wheelchair. That's right. So her approach was, hey, I, I'm, I'm acknowledging you can do this by yourself because right. you are by yourself. But if it can be easier for me to help, I'm here to help. Yeah. And I went, you know what? Let me pull the tires, and if you'd pick the chair up, that'd be great. There you go. So I've got my system. I write my routine. I grab the tires. I threw them in the back seat. She lifted the chair up, put it across my lap. Felt weird moment like she was going to give me a hug, and then off she went. Yeah. Because I, I think she's seeing her son, who I believe is younger the way she said it, is seeing me going, oh, wow, he's going to be independent. Okay. But yet she also had the respect to say, hey. I'll let you do it by yourself, but if you need help, here it is. So let me ask you, Barry, how many times, and, and you, you've been using a chair for a very long time, so maybe it's a percent of time, that you actually, you're fine, you can do it, you could lift it all, but you wanted to maybe accept the help or the assistance because you could then have a, a little interaction or you could maybe demystify, etc. Yes. Do you consciously and intentionally do that? Yes, I do. Um, there are certain times when it's just easier if I do it by myself. Sure. But under the right circumstances, you bet I'll let somebody help. There you go. Because now they're, for one, they're feeling good. Yeah. It's reinforcing them doing the right thing uh, and in, in terms of how they've approached. Um, and absolutely, that's a great question because I, I consciously do that. Yeah. And sometimes I'll actually get to the door first. And now there's a little bit of chivalry here. If I can get to the door first and, and it's a woman, then I will open the door. As you should. You're but a man that's and there's exactly chivalry right. that's is alive. I believe. Absolutely. Yeah. And but I if I see someone who's not sure whether they should get the door for me, I'll slow down. Okay. I'll let them get the door. There you go. Um, just because it makes you know, it makes someone feel better. They're they're helping out. And know? and that doesn't and, surprise me. You and answered. it doesn't belittle me in any that's way. That's right. You know, because people say the wrong things again because they don't know what they should say yeah and sometimes there's a tact thing and some people are just not tactful in general yeah but i usually just get a giggle out of it I, yeah i don't take it too I, seriously uh, under this topic i gotta share another story so um i won't use his name but um i had a gentleman 14 years ago when we started within Coldstream the disability advisory service initiative i wanted to do it right so I got acquainted with a gentleman living with quadriplegia since he was 10 years old. At that time, he was in his late 30s, maybe early 40s. And he became a full-time employee at Coldstream to help me build out the DAS, as we call it, DAS system. And we had, uh, at that time, monthly uh, all-company uh, meeting. And so this gentleman you know, rolled in, and I made sure in advance that you know we were properly uh, ready for him in this big conference room. 
And at the end, I said, as we would introduce all new team members, hey, we got a new team member, Joe, Sally, et cetera. What's your background, this or that? And then I said, I want guys, I want you to meet my new team member. And, and here he is, and, and uh, he'll share with you his background, et cetera. I don't think people expected what came next. He said, look, ask me. And he explained who he was, his background, and what have you. Right. And, and then he said, look, if you want to know anything about my life, ask me. He's living with quadriplegia. If you want to know, he said, how long it takes my caregivers to get me up in the morning. What's my morning routine? If you want to know how long it takes me in, you know, during the day to go through what I have to do. He said, if you want to know how a quad has sex, ask me. If you want to know how a quad poops, ask me. The, the people <laughs> around the room were mortified. I was watching body <laughs> language acutely. I loved what he was doing because, one, he was opening this door wide open and wonderfully with sincerity he was pushing people like wow i would never think to ask anybody that able body disabled body i don't care you just wouldn't but he was he was really breaking down those barriers and those walls and he became an immediate hit at coldstream everybody loved him because they just knew hey i am like you i'm i'm i have different things in my life you want to know something just like beer if i want to know something about you maybe not your sex life right okay anyway but if i want to know say hey Go build a friendship and, and meet somebody and ask them about their hobbies and their interests and their life and their background. And he was, in a way, demystifying the disability part of him so people could get to know him or at least had an avenue to get to know him. And that's what I believe he truly wanted in the end. Right. So that, I've never forgotten that story as well. of, And, and, I, and he's a rare bird. You know who we're, we're talking about. Uh, but he's a rare bird. Not, not many people, I think, are, 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 would have made that statement. Right. Well, when Emily and I, my wife and I first started dating, <clears throat> I had to do that exact same thing. It was, I don't know what you don't know. I don't know what you want to know. If you don't ask, it's really not my fault for you not knowing. Yeah. Because if you don't ask, then I'm not going to be able to tell you because I'm not thinking that. I mean, maybe I was thinking something, but no, that's just um, <laughs> or hoping I guess I should say. But uh, but it was a communication thing, and yeah. it was the same with my buddies. I mean, Michael, who's sitting behind you, you know, running the show back here. You know, I've known Mike since I was twelve. He knew me for 10, 10 plus years before I crashed, or ten years. So we were friends before, and then afterwards, it was well, well, what changed? Well, everything changed, but some things didn't change at all that's right so until we figure it out and l i was lucky i had a group of guys like michael and brian my travel mate who they just figured it out with me but uh it, it was one of those communication things if you don't ask i don't even know you don't know yeah so you gotta open that and and i again i go back to the whole giving people grace because people will approach me and they'll say things that they didn't think it through and it could easily be offensive mm -hmm. i mean really easily i could be offended but I don't let myself do that because if I'm offended by somebody trying to communicate with me even if they didn't do it right it's my obligation to either educate them or just let it roll yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? we were just in a actually Michael was here Mike and, and my wife Emily and I were in a pub up in Snohomish and this guy he'd had a few and he came over and and he uh, what did he say he said oh man I I'm congratulations on being out you being in a wheelchair and all Oh my and God. I turned, and there were so many different things I could have said. I mean, and my immediate smartass comes in, and I was like, no, no, no. You? No. Yeah, and I went, you know what? <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate that. And then he kind of gave me a man hug, and then he wandered away. And 
Emily looked at me like, well, that was funny because it really wasn't tactful. Yeah. But anyhow, whatever. So I went outside uh, a little little while later, and as I was coming in, it was just a sea of butts. Trying to get through a crowd in a small bar is a pain <laughs> in my ass. So I'm moving through the crowd. He sees that. He jumps in front of me, and he cleared a path all the way to my table. Moved everybody in the bar. And then when I got there, said, do you need a drink, man? I went, no, no, I'm good. He's like, okay, well, congratulations again for being out. I love seeing you out here. And then he walked away. And I thought, you know, he's got somebody in his world who's in a similar situation as me who doesn't go out. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. I don't know that. Yeah. But yeah. that's kind of what I took was that he was congratulating me for doing something that somebody he knew didn't do. Yeah. So me being mad at him would have disrespected his experience as well as my own. Yeah. So, again, it's, it's communication and how you take that communication yeah. because it's easy to be offended, and especially today. Yeah, <laughs> people look at the, for ways to be offended. absolutely. Yeah, we could all be a lot better off if we, you know, spend the time trying to find things that have gone right versus not. Yeah, you know, the other thing I wanted to share in our conversation, and this is a, um, it's really a life principle that I have. Um, I well, I have two sets of plaques. These are ceramic plaques on my wall. One's in the kitchen. One's up in my loft. And uh, I used to have one at Coldstream before I, and I had to take it down. There are five sayings, uh, and it actually came, first time I saw this was Gandhi. And it was, I don't know if he was the originator, because I've also seen it similar in scripture. But uh, these five tiles, and the first one started with, he used the adjective loving. Loving thoughts learning turned into loving words, loving habits, loving actions, loving destiny. So his whole litany was thoughts, words, actions, habits, destiny. You can put any adjective in front of it. Gandhi chose to put loving. Loving thoughts turn into loving words, loving actions, loving habits, loving destiny or character. And you travel around the world. We travel in our worlds, etc. And what we're all thinking, we eventually are going to be saying, and you can't fix this. You can't alter this. This is the way God made it. This is the way both you know body and mind works. What we're thinking, we're going to be saying, we're going to be doing, going to be habits, going to end up in our character or destiny. So I think sometimes when you have a positive, you have positive thoughts, you speak in positive words, you act in positive manners. Anybody that knows you, you have a positive character around you. And if it weren't, and we, you and I both run into people, able-bodied or not, that have negative or challenging thoughts, challenging words, challenging, or prickly thoughts, prickly action, or they're disappointed in their own life, their own place. And, and it, it emanates. So I think that back to this mindset, I challenge all of us, able-bodied, disabled, but all of us to, to think of how can we can control things. First off is positive or loving or compassionate or forgiving. Thoughts, words, actions, habits, destiny, apply whatever adjective. And I think for uh, you having the attitude and the mindset you do, Gary, you have, you have changed lives not even knowing it. Another story. I was free skiing with my family up at uh, Whistler, or excuse me, excuse me, Crystal Mountain. And I was uh, getting my skis on and it was right off of a uh, kind of heated uh, brick area that there was no snow. And here came a guy that was in a manual wheelchair and was transferring over to a Sitski, self-transferring. And I thought, well, this is cool. And so I kind of just uh, uh, cruised over. I was on my skis, but I just kind of scooted over. And, and I asked him, I, I said, uh, hey, have you ever uh, skied without doors for all? And he looked at me 
with this really vicious look in his face. And I won't say what he said to me, but he had no interest in me approaching him and talking to him at all. He apparently either did not like, thought that Outdoors for All was um, maybe a, a, a pandering organization, or he had a bad experience with us. I don't know, but it was extremely negative. And back to earlier in our conversation that if you bury in all your interactions, like the guy in the bar that really wanted to help you, but he was doing it in a really uninformed way, had you uh, kind of reacted differently, you would he would have had maybe the same thoughts in his mind as I do to this gentleman. Uh, and I'm pretty informed, so I didn't take it anywhere else. I know it was just right. him, not the chair user community or the disability community. But he was very nasty to me in about a 10-second kind of interaction. And I thought, you're hurting somewhere, friend, and I'm yeah. sorry about that. Right. Yeah, right. and I he didn't, maybe he was approached by too many weird people, or what, I don't know, uh, yeah. and, or acting weird, or not knowing how to act, and maybe I was the 15th person that morning, I'm not sure. But that, uh, I'd never forgotten that. Right, right. And, and you know, that, that probably had a unfortunate leverage effect if he is doing that in every interaction with everybody around him, again, back to this mindset thing. Well, it's funny you said that because I actually had an experience like that. I went and mountain biked, <clears throat> a wheelchair mountain bike. And the very first time I did it was actually through Outdoor Sprawl. And it was, they called me up and said, oh my gosh, we got a couple of guys that have brought these mountain bikes. Um, you should come up and try them. And I went up and it didn't actually work. I couldn't get in the one that they had. But one of the guys in the wheelchair was like, hey man, what do you do? I said, oh, you know, I've got a public speaking company. He goes, oh, you're one of those super gimps that goes and talks about how cool everybody in wheelchairs is shit and i thought he's kidding at first and realized and these guys they totally shunned me they did not like the fact that i had taken my experiences of being in a chair and turned it into a business and a public speaking business at that and they gave me a hard time because of it and what's funny is a few years later when they made the movie murderball yeah one of those guys was in murderball and and it was part of it. He wasn't yeah. one of the lead guys, yeah. but he was part of that team. So I went down and was hanging out, and he realized mm -hmm. who I was. And I went, you know, dude, really? Yeah. Know, don't even. Because yeah. he tried to be nice now because he realized that, well, you know, I, I may have had something to say. Yeah. But his, his interaction to me was the same. It was like, ugh, you know jackass yeah right <laughs> this made me laugh that's so right. it's humans or humans or humans that's right you deal with the good the bad and the ugly it's just how you react when right they do different things so let's chat a little bit about not the humans but maybe the system yeah like work systems yeah you know, so in, in, in the workforce as as an employer you because i believe of your experience working and your passion for Ski for all or outdoors for all. Sorry, I, I still call it ski I, for all I when I'm thinking you. old school, especially yeah. when I see you. Oh, um, dude! Yeah, come on. <laughs> um, understanding that accommodations might need to be made, but that's okay. Uh, I actually interviewed a, a dear friend of mine, Kathy Faulkner, who was uh, she's a, a voice talent. She I was, watched that podcast. Did you? Okay, yes. she it's awesome. It was so fun to have her here because she was the very first person in the work world who overlooked my need for accessibility and gave me a chance knowing it was gonna be more difficult by hi to hire me than somebody else. And so I was lucky that my first experience was a positive one. Not mm -hmm. everybody gets that. Right. Um, and one thing I'll, I'll, I'll go back, I don't know if you and I were actually talking about this before we started recording was 
what COVID did. And I want you to, to yeah. share with, with me again what, what you told me before we went online. Sure. So I tried to find the article. I think I left it in my office before I drove over here. And a disability advocate in Seattle, she uh, uh, was interviewed or submitted an op-ed in the Seattle Times, and it was either March or April of 2020. COVID had just hit. And the title of the article was something to the effect of, uh, now you all know uh, what we've been asking for all along, which as we now are living, it's part of our head. There is no question of the ability of remote working, of technology accessible uh, platforms to deliver what we all deliver, what we do for work or um, uh, how, we, how we operate. Um, and she was saying within you know two months, corporate America had pivoted in a manner it's never pivoted before that I know of maybe going into World War II, an industry completely pivoted, this is of the same magnitude, that we all started to be in home environments, using technology, away from people, where we, we couldn't be moving around. And in some sense, I didn't think about this till just right now, Barry, it's almost as if everybody was having a taste of having a disability. I, I didn't even think the, about that till I right now. I feel the exact same way, that everybody realized that there was a little bit of a challenge there more so than what they initially saw. That's right. So whether it was, oh, you don't get to go to that restaurant or you can't go here, you can't go there. Now we know why we couldn't. It was for good right. and, and uh, appropriate public health reasons. But it was still an exterior influence, altering life's habits, vocation, avocation, whatever, friendships, relationships. And that is what many people in the disability specialties community do face impediments based on their disability. That's right. So anyway, it was a fascinating article. And uh, there was also a huge body of work that came out early in COVID of, and it almost reminded me back to the 1999, 2000, 2001, when we had labor shortage, technology companies were sucking up everybody. People were getting, you know, Audi TTs as a signing bonus. How could us little firms compete with that? So we started looking to alternative workforces. I had a friend that um, he's a very successful uh, inventor, has uh, an incredible company, and he brought into a business organization and profiled that he was using prison labor. Monroe mm -hmm. State Prison, he had a manufacturing facility set up there. Now there's a lot of controversies today around that, and I get it. At the time, it was emerging of this is an alternative workforce. These people want to work. They want to, to do something positive, even though they're incarcerated. And I'm not at all, of course, associating people that are incarcerated with people in the disability world. But we learned there was, there was unemployment was low. There were no workers. So there were a lot of articles coming out in early COVID of here is a unfortunate left behind, not thought of, not focused on a workforce. Yeah. And what we can all now do relative to complete either 100% remote work, partial remote work, et cetera, I think is absolutely wonderful for the disability and special needs community. Yeah. I was part of, before COVID, uh, I was on the governor's committee for disability employment. And one of the initiatives that I got involved in was, a, it was called DEI, and it, it was Disability Employment Initiative. Okay. And we actually approached businesses in the greater Seattle area with the the mindset of people with disabilities are perfect employees 
and and I say perfect, uh, using the the term loosely, because they're employees that they're harder to employ. So once they get a job, they stay. They're more motivated. There's a whole list of criteria behind sure. hiring somebody with a disability that that we were trying to promote. And I got to give credit to Alaska Airlines. <clears throat> of all the companies that I talked to, Microsoft was spearheading. They were one of the the, the leading companies that was willing to have the conversation. And so was Alaska Airlines. And I actually met with Alaska Air Group that was trying to figure out how they could do customer service remote before COVID. And one of their pushbacks was that they do all of their training on site. And somebody with quadriplegia, who would be the perfect person for a call center, who can answer sure. the phone and they can do all, all the things that need to be done for a call center, you know, customer service representative. They were having trouble trying to figure out how to get them from their home to the two week training at Alaska Air's corporate okay. headquarters. But, and they were working through it. And they were the, the one company of all the companies that I talked to that said, we're willing to figure this out. Yeah. And then COVID hit and then the whole world figured it out. Yeah, that's right. Three weeks. <laughs> that's right. But I, I've got to give credit to the Alaska Air Group. They they really were proactive in saying, "Well, this is the right thing to do," um, versus we have to do it. Yeah. So by the time co- when COVID hit, the Alaska Air Group was ahead of everybody. They had their customer service already like dialed. They had their training remote. They were ready to go. So it was fun. That, them and Microsoft too. Got it. You know, Microsoft has a, a very supportive disability group within the organization. Do you know why I believe that Microsoft is of that? Satya? Yeah. His son. Yeah. Exactly. His, yeah. His Two son. of his three children. And unfortunately, That's Zane it. passed away a couple years yep, ago. I saw that. But a lot of folks, uh, a lot of people didn't realize that the Nadella family are living with a couple of family members uh, with disabilities. In fact, that's how I met Satya. Oh, okay. Because uh, of Outdoors for All and the capital campaign, they were our lead um, major donor. And that was really wonderful. So, yeah, the Nadellas have been part of the... Uh, Outdoors for All program for a number of years. In fact, uh, I think today, how many people might have been standing next to a new or Satya Nadella out on the snow as participants were getting ready or waiting in the lunch line in the lodge, you know, while their their loved ones are out skiing or snowboarding and not knowing they're sitting right. next to uh, the, <laughs> the Nadellas. So, yeah, and that goes back to also the personal experience. That's right. That's this, right. I mean, like it or not, and you know, Barry, I don't have a disability. I don't have anybody in my family with a disability, cognitive or physical. I will never know as close in this 35 years of trying to help out work and involved in the disability community, I will never know. I don't know now. I may know tomorrow if I become disabled. So there's, there's still a gap. Right. Nobody knows what it is like to live with a disability unless you're living with a disability. And to, to top on, to add to that, um, everybody's disability is different. That's so, right. you know, I'm a realtor is my day job and trying to, to train realtors that every, every person with a disability or accessibility and disability are relative. You know, that's, that's how mm-hmm. I, I kind of phrase that because looking at it just from regular clients as a realtor, you have 25 clients. They all have different needs. They all have different wants. One's the garage is the most important, and one's the extra bedroom for the office, and one wants a main level, and one wants this. And I'm just talking about their general clients, that when you get into the world of disability and accessibility, just because somebody is in a wheelchair doesn't mean that they have the same needs as the next person in a wheelchair. And a lot of that is back to what we were talking about, communication, because you can't know 
you can't know what I need. Right. And that's okay. That's just fine. But knowing how to ask the right questions to find out what you need to know to have our communication and our whatever that relationship transaction is, well, that goes right back to the communication and the mindset of me going, hey, it's okay and I don't know. You saying it's okay, I don't know, and me understanding it's okay that you don't know. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Let's talk it through. Um, because it is. It's. I, w I was amazed when I first got into real estate. And I, I know a lot about accessibility. You know, Being on the Governor's Committee for Disability, I learned about disabilities that weren't my own. And it broadened my horizons mm -hmm. and being part of uh, Outdoors for All. You know, being next to a kid who has some, whatever the disability is that they've got. And I took a group of quadriplegics out to lunch. <clears throat> it's dangerous, don't ever do that. Don't ever put them all at the same place at the same time because they're crazy. And I went, okay, you guys, Barbie Dream Wedding House. If you could design your Barbie Dream Wedding House, what would it be? And I got five different answers. That's right. I got one that said, I want 100% of my house accessible. I wanna be able to access every square inch because someday I'm gonna get married and I'm gonna have kids. And I wanna be able to assist them verbally and the things that they need to be able to do when they're growing up, even though I can't physically help them. And I got the guy sitting right next to him went, ah, that's a bunch of crap. He said, I want a three-story house. And I went, you're funny. And he looked at me and went, no, I want a three-story house. I went, what are you talking about? He said, I want the main level 100% accessible. Everything, everywhere that I go. He said, but I've got caregivers that come over all the time. And when they're not in my square footage, I want them out of my square footage. Yeah. They can climb stairs or they wouldn't be my caregiver. They can go upstairs. And I got a bunch of equipment. And I want that equipment out of my square footage. So I want it downstairs. He said, so yeah. I want a three-story house. And, you know, my brain was blown. Yeah. I was like, wait, I just had a quadriplegic tell me you wanted a three-story house. On the surface would sound ridiculous. Yeah. What are you talking about? So I learned that all of this is relative. And your comment of, well, you can't know because you just can't. Right. And that's okay. Because I don't know what my friend Todd or my friend Conrad or my friend Tanya or my friend Kenny I don't know what it is. Now, they're all wheelchairs, but they all have different needs and wants and desires and, and thoughts and things. So yeah. that's okay. And for me to find out what Kenny wants, I got to go Kenny. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're doing this. Is that going to work? Right. I don't know what it's like to be in a power chair. And Kenny says, yes, no, other. Thanks for asking. We're good. Yeah. Boom. Communication. Yeah, that's and right. It's about that mindset from behind it of going, hey, I'm not afraid to ask. You're not afraid to answer. And I think also what you're, you're touching on, Barry, is... Uh, and I'm not taking them off the hook, but I think it's an impediment uh, for somebody not living with a disability or able-bodied person, however you want to characterize it. Something I learned through the Brain Injury Alliance when I got involved with them and helping out and really understanding um, uh, the realm of cognitive disabilities, whatever, and, and their, their statement is, if you've met one person with brain injury, you've met one person with brain injury. Exactly. Because they are, ev and so, how does then someone trying to say, oh, I've, I've met someone, but wait a minute, they're all, it, it's, uh, how do I say this? It certainly is extra effort. It's gonna take a unique person to stay very open-minded to say, even though I've met, interacted with somebody with, with brain injury or cognitive disorder, this person's gonna be different. And I've got it to understand from the ground level. I've gotta put the effort, I've gotta invest. I've gotta have the mindset, back to this conversation. I've gotta have the mindset saying, this is a whole new individual right. that has nothing to do with the past interactions because every disability has a different impact on, on individuals. And there's some commonality, of course. Right. But right. the intentionality, and I don't know, maybe it's just the short attention span. Again, not trying to take people off the hook because I do think there's a responsibility. But 
uh, short attention span of, yeah, if I have to spend that much effort to get to know somebody in just a casual, passing, public manner, I'm just not going to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. It, yeah, it's it's an interesting dynamic because people are different anyhow. I mean, one of the – so Chris Voss is one of the FBI's lead nego- hostage negotiators, and I've taken as many classes as I can from this gentleman. He's fantastic. And one of the things he talks about in negotiation is that if you negotiate like you want to be negotiated with – you're probably going to be wrong because there's four different types of personality if you want to break it down, which means that you only have a 25% chance of negotiating with yourself. Mm. So you've got a 75% chance that you're negotiating wrong because one person might be analytical and the other person's very, you know, A-driven and the other person's visual. And so knowing your audience helps you to be a better negotiator. It's the same thing with this, that when you're talking to somebody across the table, whether they have a disability or not, it gets to know your audience. Mm-hmm. You know who they are, what kind of a person they are. You learn that by communicating, and then you figure out the best way to communicate with them. So the disability just adds a level of that, you know, it, because there is a little bit more of a complicated effort yeah. when it comes to somebody who has a disability. We actually interviewed a, a, just an awesome gentleman. His name's Kevin, and he's the executive director of the Epilepsy Foundation for Washington and Oregon. And he and I were talking about how my disability is very visual. You can't not see my wheelchair. Sure. Epilepsy is not. That's right. So there's this immediate stereotype that when something happens within the epilepsy world, and again, I'm generalizing Mm -hmm. now, that people go, whoa, you know, what? They have no idea because they can't see it. Yeah. And they don't necessarily know that that person's epileptic and that they have special a special need or special needs until something happens until something happens that's That's right right. and then they freak out you know i say they but people will go oh my god i don't know what to do yeah because you just can't know you know and so until you ask so we had a really fun conversation about the the communication thing as well yeah so i'm I'm looking at a magazine in front of you and i have to giggle yeah because <laughs> tell, tell, tell me what it is. It's well, as you know, I subscribe to New Mobility Magazine. I, we get it in uh, in my office, and all my team members look at it because we're spending a lot of time trying to understand and learn and resource. We meet people through this thing, and you know, I actually want to interrupt really quick. I want to know why the people in your office are interested in this and why you have them. What what facet of Coldstream okay. brings the need for them to understand? disability accessibility etc yeah got it okay whole uh, different realm but absolutely related um very 14 years ago i was contacted by uh, a very prominent attorney here in our state who had just settled on behalf of a young man at that time living with quadriplegia based on a, a serious ski accident and they just settled a case for him uh, they'd heard about my work in disability uh, adaptive recreation and disability world and found out that I was an advisor, investment advisor, and contacted me saying, would you meet this family and potentially serve their financial wealth management needs? Love to. Met this gentleman's family and we agreed to work together. Six months later, the same law firm uh, settled a very significant case, a young man, uh, incomplete quad, has some upper body uh, movement and capability, but paralysis on his arms and chair user and and a large settlement, and would you meet with this young man and his family? I said, well, sure. And something started to feel very weird to me, and that is my family and I, and I don't know why, but back to college days when I was running a dorm building, and one of my uh, residents 
uh, was older like me. I was in the Navy before college. So she and I hit it off, but she uh, was living with severe cerebral palsy. And her name was Joanne. Uh, we hit it off and became very close friends. And first time her freshman roommate uh, came down and knocked on my door and said, you know, Joanne's having a seizure, and et cetera, and I've got to pull her tongue out of her throat to have her not choke, et cetera, and I'd never done this before. Freaked me out, but that was my first time of real serious interaction with somebody uh, living with a disability. Got into the workforce and met outdoors for all, ski for all then, et cetera, and said, this is my calling, supporting people in this realm, doing what I can do. So this attorney uh, gets in touch with us. A couple of these cases were serving these families, and I started to feel weird of, wait a minute, my family and I haven't been doing this out in, in the community and et cetera, because, and then bringing that into the workforce, I'm not trying to monetize our, our kind of, what I think is an obligation for everybody to be serving the public somehow, some way, be a contributor, not a consumer. And so I spent a year, put together a focus group with people that I knew in the disability community, legal community, children's hospital, uh, doctors, et cetera, and came up with, there are people living with disabilities that have financial needs. We, of course, do all of that. And then I happen to have this unique at that time and growing uh, interest and knowledge of disability community and awareness and advocacy. So I thought, why not us? So we created Disability Advisory Service, which is to do all that we do for financial services, wealth management, tax planning, investment planning, estate planning, you know, all that kind of stuff. But then we overlaid this disability advocacy. And I'm proud that we've never had, we've never charged fees for this or nothing. It is what we can do, so we should do. Helping people get connected to the right construction folks to remodel a house, getting to know the automobile conversion companies, getting to know, of course, the adaptive recreation programs, the uh, rehab facilities like uh, pushing boundaries, uh, to understand benefits, understand, for instance, someone's living with a disability and maybe they were you know, unfortunately harmed by the actions of somebody else and they're going through a lawsuit. And along the way, maybe they're using friends and family as a caregiver and neighbors. Everybody's trying to help out. Well, at some point, this person gets financial reparations for whatever harm, and we come in and say, wait a minute, you're now an employer. You're not just going to pay you know, a little bit of spiff here and there to a neighbor to come help you out, etc. You're an employer. You're going to start paying taxes, and you're going to have employee manuals. You're going to do this right, not only to do things right, but also so somebody doesn't transfer you and hurt their back and sue you and these precious financial resources you have that are critical to your life, you're not going to lose them. So that comprehensive nature of trying to help these families navigate, okay, we know wealth management, but navigate the other side is what created Disability Advisory Service. And I am so blessed, Barry, that 90% of my professional time since 2009, when we started this initiative 14 years ago, I get to spend on exactly this. So I'm looking at New Mobility Magazine. The reason, answering your question, is my team knows. Uh, I run this team, and this is our focus. And I hire against this. We have 12 people on this little team. We're just 12 out of 175 at my company. And everybody that is now on the team has been presented with, this is what we do. If you don't have an interest in this, if you don't have a passion for or aren't open to growing a passion and an interest in supporting the disability and special needs community through financial services and what we do, then I'm sorry, we're probably not going to be a good fit. 
So New Mobility Magazine, we read every month, we pass it around, everybody gets assigned, we get articles, people are following up on resources. And, and here, one of my team members came in this morning, I have all these, you know, for probably the past year and a half sitting on a desk. He opened this uniquely, everybody knew I was coming in to chat with you today, and sure as crap, here on page 50 is your picture right in front of the, you know, the real estate section on this, it was really cool. So I didn't know that you were in here, even though I read this every month, cover to cover. So I thought I'd bring it in and Anyway, everybody is excited to hear my experience today. They knew I was coming out to talk to the great Barry. Yeah, right. And uh, etc. <laughs> and you know, here was a, another uh, uh, article, and or excuse me, another uh, edition. This I don't have my glasses on, but this was just a month ago. And here's you know, Ian's favorite trails. Oh yeah. You know who Ian oh, is. Oh yeah. Ian's and there's Ian, friend. and and I think in this other one is uh, our buddy Kenny. Yep. And so. Um, we, we get a lot of resources. We talk to service providers who are advertising here that we want to know and vet their services on behalf of our clients. We've gone to conferences. So yeah, this is, this is why these two magazines are here, New Mobility. So we, and, and, and I'll continue a little bit more um, on this whole financial service side. Um, this unique, unique realm, for instance, of special needs trusts. Somebody has financial reparations for some harm. If they're a minor, these monies need to be protected and not just, and it unfortunately happens, just be open to family actually having access to. So we'll set up these special needs trusts. We know a whole cadre of specific attorneys that are trained in drafting special needs trusts and trustees and trust protectors, all these unique things that can help facilitate the financial uniqueness of somebody living with a disability. So yeah, that's our focus. And it uh, comes down to whether we can be on site reviewing a, a construction project or getting somebody introduced to you know uh, adaptive rec program. It is um, it is the cream on top of a wonderful profession which we get to serve people in an important part financial services. We truly are a service to others mentality firm, and then you get to layer doing this with a. a, a really incredibly appreciative people they're living with disabilities that they see this program and i get this question all the time well roger you must have a family member with a disability and this isn't about me barry it's not about me you know i don't carry this from any kind of huber standpoint i don't have a disability i don't have a family member with a disability but i tell you I am more fulfilled and there is no, to me, no more noble cause than applying my professional trade to a community that I dearly love and care for that gives so much back to me. Learning, wisdom, compassion, and friendship. And it's, so it's a community that, I don't know, 35 years ago just kind of adopted me and me them, if you will. And we're continuing with our day job to try and find ways uh, to enhance the lives of people living with disabilities and special needs. So it's pretty cool. Pretty, I feel fortunate. It is very cool. And thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, we become friends because of it. Yeah. So. Okay, Mike? Yep. Let me just see. Are there things I may be... couple more stories. Okay. Is there something just, else that you... No, I'm just thinking of maybe, um, and I may need some prompting now of, of general discussion themes mm -hmm. that 
come to oh, your mind because I, I may be fresh out. No, we're good. Okay. No, no, this is perfect. Okay. Okay. We could end it right now and no. it would be perfect, but okay. I, I'm going to continue. You bet. Just let me know when, Mike. So I want to bring up a funny story, and and I'll be honest, I don't know whether you told me the story or John Stevenson did, or it, it came up at one of the fundraisers for Outdoors for All that I was part of. Okay. And it was a story about a gentleman with autism who was cross-country skiing. Was this your story? No. Okay, my, so I'm going to tell you what My participant with autism actually was a downhill skier. Okay, but. so whoever it was that was telling this story was... I love to ask, what's your favorite experience? And I'll, I'll ask you that here in a second. Um, you know, with Pushing Boundaries, you mentioned earlier, and there's an exercise therapy clinic that's here in Redmond that I'm just super passionate about. And the stories that come out of that organization are just fantastic. For example, there's a whiteboard on the wall, and that whiteboard has milestones that people have accomplished. And one of my favorite milestones was I brushed my own teeth. Yeah. It doesn't take a lot because it's the little thing sometimes that, yeah. that you're moving forward. So my story of Outdoor Sprawl is there was a gentleman with autism, and I've actually met him. I know who he is. And if you looked at him and saw him, you, he's probably he was in his 30s-ish, um, pretty severely on the spectrum, and was communicative but not openly communicative and always looked mad and always looked mean and always looked unhappy. Mm. But yet every single week he was on the mountain. And one day, whoever it was that was telling this story said that they were cross-country skiing and they were going across a little creek. And he said that this person, this, this gentleman, had, had never smiled. His mom and dad both said he's having fun, but everybody thought that he was being tortured as he was brought out to do this. <laughs> and the instructor, as they were going across this little stream, slipped on his skis, flipped up in the air, landed flat on his back in the water. He said, I looked up to see this gentleman looking down at me and it was the first time I'd ever seen him smile. He said, and when I got up soaking wet and looked at him, he said, I never saw him smile again. That that one moment broke through. Neat. That, that whatever that was that his brain did yeah. that allowed him to show he was having a good time. Yeah. And I just love that story because we don't know anybody else's what's going on inside their head. That's right. You know, especially when it comes to developmentally disabled, you know, individuals. There there's a you know, there there's things there that we just can't break through sometimes. But that story just stuck with me because you never know what's going on in somebody's head. That's right. And that was just the perfect experience that and I'm again, I'm pretty sure that it was John Stevenson who told it, but it might have been Ed Bronson actually. It might have been longtime executive director. Yeah, uh, that just I love that story. Yeah, it, it epitomizes everything that organizations like Outdoors for All do. Yeah, you know, they give people an opportunity. Um, not a story with any uh, maybe lesson behind it, but uh, you prompt me to uh, share. So my uh, athlete, he was a participant in our rec program. Then he became an athlete in the Special Olympics side. So downhill skier. Um, name was Giel, and Giel and I started skiing together when he was 14, so 14-year-old Korean autistic boy. Uh, fairly nonverbal, uh, would respond uh, more to, less to kind of one-word questions of, you know, you want to go left or right? Left. Um, are you okay? Yes. Are you warm or cold? Warm. Okay, great. So, you know, he would um, communicate uh, via prompting. Um, not because people living with autism have sometimes just, you know, patterns that they 
really want to go through um, and continue. Um, and I shared this story when I was up on the podium when I was just so graciously honored uh, as the gala honoree at Outdoors for All here. So I sang this to a crowd of 300 people. Gil required us, requested us almost every chairlift for four years to sing Tiny Bubbles, <laughs> continuously going up the chairlift. <laughs> so here's a 14-year-old, I don't think he'd gone through puberty yet, Korean <laughs> autistic boy, singing at the top of his lungs and forcing me to as well, tiny bubbles in my wine makes me happy all the time. <laughs> the senior staff knew where we were at all times on the hill, whether it was rain or fog or whatever, they knew where Giel and Roger were. And I just will never forget, that was his little thing. Now, he would smile and he did have uh, uh, kind of outward displays of, of pleasure and displeasure, what have you, right. so he wasn't um, cut off from that. But I think that was a joyous moment for him that he would, he somehow cajoled this guy next to him to actually sing this with him for four years running, seven weeks each year, Oh, it was just the greatest thing. And so, yeah, that's my funny little story oh, of Giel and that. chairlift rides. Oh, that's fantastic. It reminds me of, I, I went and saw the CEO of Walgreens talk, and his son is uh, non-communicative, very severely, severely disabled. And he was an advocate for people with disabilities within Walgreens. <clears throat> and he found out what was happening on the, on the production floor when if you order something online, there's a, uh, like a, uh, whatever you want to call it, that they put all the stuff in. So a it's bin. like a bin, yeah. And I guess all the bins were blue. And there were a random purple bin that was just in somewhere in there. I don't know where they had been ordered. And there was this gentleman who was pretty severely autistic. And every single time a purple bin would show up, he would do a dance. And he would dance around, and he would sing to it, and he would point to it. And everybody, you know, thought this was hilarious. Well, the upper-level management would watch this and thought, well, he's blowing productivity. What is going on? Every time one of these purple bins, he stops doing his job. So they removed the purple bins. And the floor, the rest of the people on the floor, oh. they weren't happy with that. And what they found out was that his reacting to the purple bin brought morale up across the board because everybody in that, in that production facility waited for that purple bin to come because he made them happy when he danced. That's right. And they had to have a mind shift, a mindset shift of, wait a minute, we need to think of this more holistically than That's right. that the two minutes productivity. of productivity. Yeah. And they, they started researching this and they found out that when they hired people with disabilities in whatever facility that it was, that facility became the number one most productive facility. And they figured it out was because when hiring people with disabilities, the rest of the community supports them. And, and holistically, they all raise. They all become a team. And they all become a team. That's right. And they protected each other. Yeah. And it was it was a pretty powerful lesson um, when so I that, went and saw him speak. It was fantastic for him to tell the story. And that's a great example of organic positive that came out of the diversity of a workforce. Right. I don't think this happens a lot. I want to believe it doesn't of the tokenism, right, of the workforce saying, right, oh, right. DEI initiative, we have to. What are the ratios? What are the metrics? I mean, I'm sure it happens somewhere, but in our you know, little company, Coldstream, the diversity that we do have makes us so much more robust. And just 
the understanding and the compassion of whether it is somebody with a, you know, English as a second language or somebody that does have a physical disability or comes from a different ancestral, that adds people's curiosity, interest, and just uniqueness. So, right. yeah, we should chat a little bit of, about, you know, what maybe COVID, and I'm curious, Barry, of, I've not seen any statistics, anything written in New Mobility or any other places of what has now been the enhancement, the growth of uh, percent of population in the workforce, corporate America with disabilities, et cetera, it has to have gone up. But I've not seen any body of work come out yet on that. Yeah, neither have I. And I know that it that it has because just in my in my circle of friends with disabilities, and, and I'm pretty connected with that. Yeah. The the unemployment rate of that group has you know has gone down. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Because there are more opportunities for them to have jobs that they wouldn't have been able to have before because the facility or the organization wasn't prepared for it. And now they are. You know, they can't, they can, but they don't say no as fast as they used to because they've been taught, organizations have been taught that, well, they can look outside the box a little bit. Microsoft did something that was fantastic. And this was before COVID that, for example, if, if you're hiring and somebody comes in to interview with you and they need a screen reader. They're blind. They have some kind of a visual, um, a visual impairment. That screen reader has a cost. And what was happening before was that that cost would come out of the hiring manager's budget. So if you, if, if you had two different people, you would just move away from the person who had whatever that special need was because there was an expense there. So Microsoft realized this, and they changed... It's been several years, it's been at least 10 years, maybe closer to, to a dozen. Microsoft realized that and saw the deficiency in the hiring equality because of the need for accessibility. So they took all accessibility needs and they put them into a centralized budget that came out of the general fund of Microsoft, not individual hiring managers' budgets. Nice. So when those two people came in for the interview, it was equal. And the hiring manager, when that person divulged whatever their need was for some kind of accessible requirements. Like for me, it's a desk that moves up and down or, you know, for somebody who, who needs visual or hearing or whatever the situation is, that budget requirement was not part of the hiring process. Yeah. And I got to give Microsoft credit for that because they were the first that I'd ever seen that did that. And what was fun was when they did that, I took that to Alaska Airlines. And when I was negotiating with Alaska Airlines to hire people with disabilities from their remote customer service rep when they found out about that they were all over it and and microsoft set the standard it nice. was it was fantastic to watch mm-hmm. um you know they were the first company that i've ever heard of that has a chief accessibility officer that's right you know and, and jenny is jenny the is absolutely wonderful and you know i've known her for a long time and she's she's been very proactive i wouldn't have been able to remember her name had you not said it yeah. when we kicked off the capital campaign in 2017 for Outdoors for All, we actually uh, met with her. Oh, fantastic. At the campus, yeah. and what an incredible woman. Again, Absolutely. I would not have remembered her name, yeah. but her whole department, everything that they do, because we were uh, trying to get Microsoft essentially to help us put together uh, almost a video that we could then use uh, in some of our fundraising. And the um, technology, gosh, it's skipping me. Uh, it's for sight impairment. And it is essentially where people can actually go out and recreate with this. Um, oh, Barry, darn it, it's slipping me. So we actually were able to, and we showed this actually to Satya Nadella 
afterwards. So we had two kayakers. One uh, was somebody with sight impairment. One was an Outdoors for All uh, uh, volunteer. And due to this location sounding, somebody, oh gosh, the name is skipping me. This That's is okay. bad. I should know it. But anyway, it's a, it's a technology that Microsoft pioneered seven, eight years ago to help people uh, through use of handheld GPS, their phone, or locating if you're next to somebody like uh, walking or bike riding or in a, a kayak, you could keep physical proximity to somebody even though you had sight impairment. Yeah. Um, gosh, the name will pop, pop up in the wrong time here in the future. No, it's okay. The, the, just the technology of what's going right. on right now. Well, you mentioned Ian earlier, and uh, Ian, I, I went out and you know saw his house, and he's a quadriplegic who uses voice for everything. That's right. You know, his whole house you know, pretty much moves around because he tells it to. It's absolutely fantastic. Right. It's like Todd. Are you familiar oh, yeah. with his? Yeah. As he calls it, the quad The quad, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> love it. Yeah, I've been out there a couple of times, and I think I've had, oh, at least three, maybe four uh, uh, individuals who are newly paralyzed that I've introduced to Todd and say, you've got to go out there and take a look at. Don't remodel anything. Don't have anybody come in and fix anything until you've seen what is possible. Right, right. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Looking outside the box. Right. So, so Roger, we could talk for hours. This is just fantastic. I, I love... Uh, I love everything that you've done in terms of uh, supporting people for the right reasons, you know, and we're in a, in a situation in this world where there's a lot of negative. I mean, there just is in general. And it's so fun to, and, and refreshing to just realize that, you know, there's a lot of us that we're doing this for the right reasons. We're yeah. doing this for the positive and the negative can fall away because we're focusing on the right things. Yeah. And you've done that know your whole life as long as i've known you um, i appreciate that for the very. right reasons no and i and i just love having you here so like i said we, we can maybe do this again i think after but now that we've done it once we'll we, we can have another conversation but i'd like that i'm gonna i'm gonna end it with just one one last question for you sure all right this is a tough one what's your favorite dessert ice cream any specific flavor no in fact i had this conversation with a friend of mine who is hosting me and nadia uh down in the a desert with a bunch of friends. He's, he's renting a home and it's going to be really cool. And so he was asking, because he's hiring a chef, and he was asking, and I got to share this. Oh, it won't come up on my phone because. No, I live out in the middle. Yeah. This anyway, studio is hidden in the middle. So of the he world. asked, and I, and I said, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a ice cream. In fact, a day isn't complete without ice cream. That's my, my mantra. And he said, well, a true connoisseur would have a flavor. And I said, no, I wouldn't be so disrespectful to all the other ice cream flavors that I would just choose one. I said, what about the poor Spumoni that nobody likes? And, you know, somebody's got to like Spumoni. <laughs> so, yeah, it's absolutely ice cream. No day is Thank you, my friend. Uh, I so much appreciate our conversation and your advocacy and everything that you do to make this world a better place. Uh, and uh, your mindset and your mindset.